everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Asia. I'm your host, Armita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Rockus. In this episode, I speak with Aditi Sholapurkar, co-founder of SALT, a savings and investment fintech in India that puts women at the center of its product and strategy. Aditi grew up in India and began her career in banking and has spent time working at some of the most well-known fintechs in India and Singapore, including Paytm and Neom. She came to learn that only 5% of customers of Indian fintechs are women and has been on a journey to change that with her latest venture. Aditi co-founded Salt in 2021, and they are currently raising their seed round. Please reach out if you're interested in getting involved. You can learn more about Salt by visiting salt.one. And now a word from our sponsors. everyone. My name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the green room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Aditi, welcome to the Green Room. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Amrita. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Aditi, I want to start by talking about you. Maybe a, a few questions about your early career. Tell us a little bit about growing up in India, starting your career in banking, and then going to IIM of the Okay. <laughs> so I think the, the time that I grew up in India, it was that phase of India's journey. You know, we joke that, oh, it's like doctors and lawyers. Well, the phase when I grew up in, it was actually engineers. Like that was the thing to be and the thing to do. And everybody wanted to go to IIT. And so I actually grew up, and unfortunately, as a child, I always loved, I always loved the sciences. In fact, when I was little, I think I was eight years old and I don't know what I saw on TV, but I decided that when I grow up, I'm going to specialize in ocular implants. I bow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so oddly, my, my entire, you know, my education and everything that I studied at school and then, you know, the major I picked, the college that I picked, I, I picked a place that had a solid electronics and communication engineering program. And at school, I did biotechnology because I was like ocular implants, like weirdly that goal didn't change between, you know, the ages of eight and I don't know, however old you are when you, when you go off to college. So that was the goal. And then weirdly throughout engineering college, I sort of kept to that. Like when now I think back to it, I'm like, how, but I did. And, and so I, I, did my sort of, you know, you have to do your final semester project in a very related field. It was actually designing 
very special fiber optic based soles for patients of diabetes and other diseases that gives you sensory neuropathy. So you lose, you know, feeling in the peripheries of your body. And so it's hard to walk. It's hard to do those things. And that was my project. And as emotionally fulfilling as it was, I realized that a career of research in India, at least at the time, would have just crushed my soul because it's just, and I was like, okay, I love this, but the process and the red tape is just going to kill me. And so I found myself really lost, right? Like engineering's over. I always thought I was going to do this thing. And I realized that I can't. And I remember that Bank of America came to recruit and my dad had been a banker all his life, right? And so, and by the way, this was something that I connected the dots just way later in life. But, you know, we get to that part. So my dad had been a banker all his life. My mom had been a professor of English literature. I was the only child. It was a very equal household in the sense that, you know, they they shared chores, responsibilities, child rearing more than anything else, right? And I grew up with a very natural understanding of money. Like it was just part of my life because my dad was a banker. And I remember even when I was a kid, you know, the concept of salary because there was a day when he just like, get me stuff and you know we made a joke about it like oh you you know you got your salary today right so it's very natural to have an understanding of money and somewhere I grew up loving the concept of money but then that that comes later so anyways Bank of America came to recruit and I was like okay since I'm quite lost as to what to do let's let's give this a shot and I was really fortunate I got picked to be part of their global equities team at a time when Merrill had just been subsumed into Bank of America. And so that was a crazy time because you had this like mammoth brokerage and their amazing, their amazing tech and its people and their crazy order volumes being, you know, subsumed into a bank that hitherto wasn't known for those things, right? And so it was a time of flux, it was a time of chaos. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. I saw those blotters with those blinking lights and like different strategies and seeing. I think people never think of investment banking this way, but I think nowhere is there a more beautiful and surreal culmination of technology and money. <laughs> I've never heard anyone describe investment banking that way. I love it. I know, but but and and specifically trading, like nowhere is there a more beautiful synchrony of those two things than in the technology that you know trading desks and investment banks use. I'm sorry. But that's the truth, right? And so I was mesmerized and I was like, I'm so glad this happened to me. Like, I'm so glad I'm doing this. And I think from that point onward, it was a, it was a no-brainer. I, I loved that job. I loved being at a bank. I knew that there would be like a glass ceiling if I, you know, didn't sort of specialize in, you know, business or finance. And that's why I went to I'm Ahmedabad, which, you know, again, in hindsight, it was one of those... You know, sometimes you're really glad for your parents, like they rescue you from making stupid decisions. I remember I was like, but I'm I'm doing so well and I don't want to leave my job. And my dad's like, trust me to not turn this down. And I'm I'm really glad that I didn't. And so I think it was two years of equities. And then after MBA was, you know, other two years of FIC. And interestingly, I remember FIC, so fixed income currencies and commodities, that was mostly FX. That's what I did. And again, if you do that, in India, at least, because the rupee is not a fully convertible currency, to be even half good at your job, 
you need to literally understand the way money moves, right? So you inadvertently end up getting involved in the ops and settlement cycles and things like that. And I think that's what gave me a very sort of acute awareness of the challenges of money moving. So, you know, Bamel's blotters were all about seamless and gorgeous. And now it was all about, oh, here are the very real challenges. And it was around that time in my life that I was just like, could there be a world outside the dealing room that Paytm in India was, they'd just been given a payments bank license and they were a, so so my boss and I were the origination team on their mammoth, you know, capital infusion from Ant. That's how we knew the, you know, the CEO and the team. And for some bizarre reason, they decided to hire an investment banker to build a consumer bank. I'm really glad they did. I'm really glad they did. I think it changed my life. But yeah, that's that's how I got out of the trading investment banking train and onto consumer fintech. That's an amazing journey. And at the you like breezed right over this, but you went to IIM Ahmedabad, which if folks don't know, is like the HBS Harvard <laughs> Business School of of India. So <laughs> and and so it's not surprising when you say you're not sure why Paytm wanted to bring in someone like you to build their consumer business. I think I know exactly why. Amazing experience <laughs> and credentials. But yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you did actually at Paytm and how you actually shaped that business. Especially so, at a time, sorry, but um, I, I guess also at a time when I think Paytm was like really growing and had some really exciting, really exciting prospects on the table, but wasn't obviously what we know it as today that's like super ubiquitous across India. So I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think very, you know, I always say my timing of joining Bamel was lucky. And I think that's only ever been topped by the timing at which I joined Paytm because you're absolutely right. It was that sweet spot of, you know, they, they weren't what they're today and they were changing so rapidly. So that was the time when, you know, Uber had sort of just become a big thing in India. And suddenly the central bank was like, oh, you can't use credit cards without two-factor authentication. And so everyone who wanted to use Uber was using Paytm, right? And so suddenly they saw their consumer base go from like, you know, maybe like mass market to actually mass affluent and affluent because everyone wanted to use Uber, right? And if you think about it, that really changes the way a company thinks and builds product, right? And what I've always been amazed by is that Paytm is one of those companies that managed to stretch itself across the demographic, sociographic breadth of the crazily huge beast that is India and somehow found something that everybody really cares about, right? So there's a champion com- customer in every segment. So my role at Paytm was, you know, as I said, to help build the consumer bank. And interestingly, at that time, they didn't really know what that is. So in fact, they hired this amazing woman, who, by the way, now is my co-founder at Salt, Shinjini Kumar, to be the CEO of the bank. And I was hired to build the product. And the amazing thing about that was it was totally blue sky. Like all we had was, you know, like a PDF of payments banking guidelines. This is what you can do. This is what you cannot. And you literally had to like dream up products for the bank. That would make sense for this user base that you already had that used the wallet, you know, that they already love. Paytm also had e-commerce at the time. I think they were in the process of launching movies. 
they'd launched and said shut down groceries. So, you know, the, the business had a history of how and why it made certain decisions. And I remember doing everything from, you know, sitting in meetings with the CEOs of the biggest banks in the country because everyone wanted to partner with us because of this insane user base. And the end of that same day, I would be in like the basement, two levels down, no sunlight, sitting with a team of like 40 engineers, you know, testing very basic things like EOD reconciliation, right? Because all of a sudden we're a bank and that's a new level of responsibility. So I, I always remember, you know, when my friends used to ask me at the time, this is crazy, like what a change. And my now husband, then fiance was, he was still a trader. So he he also, he, he joined Goldman straight out of MBA and, you know, he was doing that. So it was a really different life. And I'd moved on from that life. And I remember thinking, yes, this is surreal in that when I was a trader, I would pick up the phone and keep the phone 30 seconds later. And in that 30 seconds, chances were I'd made anywhere from like tens of thousands to even more in PNL. And now I'm in an environment where 50 rupees, so that's like close to half a dollar of a customer's money is treated equally sacrosanct, right? And more than anything, that's that's humbling. In fact, that whole experience was humbling and eye-opening. And I was like, this is all I've ever done because by then, I, that's all I'd ever done. I'd been in a dealing room, just the banks had changed, right? So yeah, Paytm was an education all over again. I think that's the best way to put it. That's amazing. I'm inspired. I'm inspired hearing you say that. And I think, I mean, I have my my experience at Grab is like quite similar, right? We're working with Grab drivers, similar to Uber drivers who are making, you know, relatively low income, but on like a daily basis. And you have to treat that with such respect because this is their livelihood. And I think that's so important to remember when you're working with with this type of a segment, very much based of the pyramid. But anyway, let's keep talking about your career at the you also, I think you went back to Goldman and then went to another big fintech darling, but here in Singapore, Neom. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So I was at Paytm. Everything was great. Super happy. And then my, as I said, now husband, then fiance decided to get married. The only problem is he was in Hong Kong with Goldman and I was at India at Paytm. And we always joke that I was a lot more employable, but it is true that I was. But I think given the nature of his work, so he was a a program trader. So that's like a really specialized kind of trader that literally just like that business, that clientele doesn't exist in India. And so I was like, okay, no worries. Let's let's give this a shot. Because interestingly, that was the time when Goldman wanted to hire someone as part of their venture desk to look at early stage startups, early stage investing out of APAC. Right. And I'd, I'd never done that. Like that was the one part of investment banking that I'd never done. And I was really excited to see just how that would be. Right. Like I'd put heart, soul, blood, tears, everything into one fintech working so deeply. And I think there was something exciting about the prospect of working with you know tons and tons of fintechs and like investing in them. And so that's how that's how Goldman happened. Again, that was an education of an absolutely different kind. I think. I'm very grateful for the kind of exposure it gave me to how people build companies in the rest of in, in the rest of APAC, right? And to be very fair, by the time I joined Paytm, it wasn't it wasn't a startup in the sense that you know survival was insured, right? But here I was working with companies where survival wasn't insured, and you know I I've 
I've seen both sides of it when I was able to take a company to IC and get them that survival capital. And, you know, on the flip side, sometimes having to deny them that. And that's a, it's not always great, but it's a learning, right? And in that time, I met this amazing company called, it was, it's called Instagram at the time. And I met this amazing founder called Rajit Nanu. And I was actually, I wanted to bring them to Goldman's IC. And as I learned more and more about the business, and I think somewhere the FX trader in me was just really intrigued by how they'd manage this and how they could arguably just disrupt large chunks of that industry, right? And I don't know, something just clicked. And I was like, I think I want to move to Singapore and work with you. And so that's what happened. I still don't, I don't even remember now what my first designation was because in true startup fashion, you did everything. So I was in charge of fundraising. I was also made in charge of getting licenses and like I used to do RFPs for really large accounts. It was, it was crazy and it was amazingly fun because my journey at Neom was again, you know, we started at the time when B2B fintech wasn't, you know, VC's favorite child in APAC. So it was actually quite hard to like raise money. Like it was still the time when everyone was like, oh, consumer and enterprise wasn't getting that much love. And I think towards the end of my stint, you know, when we got Temasek in and I remember feeling this sense of, okay, survival's insured. That's short. I don't want to attempt fate, but you know, the company is doing great now. So again, getting to see that journey from being that, you know, that, that scrappy company that's trying to prove a point to a company that, well, did indeed end up proving that point. In fact, I remember by the time I left, TransferWise, which, you know, another great company, and it had, I think somewhere, just an inspiration, right, in terms of what a good company should be for, for Neom, was actually starting to, you know, look at Neom and be like, oh, I think there's a point in going the B2B enterprise way. So that was a, that was a really nice thing. And Prajit, or my, my boss there, is actually one of the biggest reasons why I think I just had the courage to do salt and do something of my own because I'd worked with, by then I'd worked with my fair share of founders, right? Vijay Shekhar Sharma at PTM and then all the founders that, you know, of the port goes at Goldman. And I think somehow working with Prajit, seeing him up close, honestly getting to know his family and friends and, you know, just seeing that as a founder, you could have a balanced and well-rounded life without realizing it. I think somewhere that had been a hindrance in my mind and seeing his life that just went away and I'm just I'm I'm so grateful that he let me in more than anything else yeah that's really lovely to hear because I think you're so right everything we hear about basically being a founder a startup founder is that like you're going to be grinding you're going to be spending a lot of time and you can't really have a life that's basically your startup is your life and it's really nice to hear you say that you had some good role models that that showed you otherwise. And of course, sounds like led you to starting SALT. So let's talk about SALT because I'm really excited about SALT. I don't think I've ever seen a fintech like SALT before. So instead of me telling the audience about SALT, what does SALT do? And how did you, besides being inspired that you could actually start something based on you know having a more well-balanced life, and like live becoming stepping into the founder's shoes, like what drove you to start Salt and believe that this business model could be successful? So, you know, it's again, I mean, you're going to hear me say the lot, say this a lot, but timing, right? So, 2020 Feb, I remember Feb 27, 2020 was when I think phase one of lockdown 
started yeah. in Singapore, right? So it was a little before India, for example. India wasn't in lockdown. They didn't have that much COVID even at that point. And so a lot of my Indian friends in Singapore, right? You know, the, the retrenchments, the salary cuts, a lot of that started happening a lot earlier for us here in Singapore. And let's say it did for, you know, my friends and family in India. And a lot of these friends in Singapore, I'd, you know, I'd known them for a while. I knew their backgrounds. I knew everything about them. or So I thought I did. And then when this happened, I realized, because they were like couple friends, right? My husband and I, and then, you know, it was all like couples and we were all friends and we were like board game fanatics. I remember that's how we became friends. And all of a sudden I started seeing this huge difference between the men and the women. Like that was a little bit crazy to me, right? Because that was the first time that happened. Mm-hmm. And it was in the context of money. It was that money or any uncertainty around it had a very different effect on the women. And these were amazing women, like ranked Scrabble players, like, you know, making ads for Apple, like super duper smart women. And all of a sudden, in the context of money and especially like uncertainty around it, their reactions were so visceral and so different than the men's, right? And I remember being asked to do like a masterclass for them. Like, because my husband and I have always been very into managing our own money, probably because of our, you know, professional backgrounds. And I remember I made this like amazing pitch deck with like, not a pitch deck, sorry, like a deck with like graphs and charts. Because I was like, I'm going to make my friends just amazing investors. But 10 minutes into the conversation, it went to the most basic of things like savings account versus current account. And what was odd to me wasn't that that's where the conversation went but was the degree of shame that those women, my friends, felt at not knowing these things. That's crazy. Like, which other industry has convinced you that you're the problem because you don't understand, right? Nobody else does that. Nobody else has the power to do that to you. But money weirdly did. And they genuinely felt like, you know, they'd missed the bus. And there was little shame, Amrita. There's no other way to, you know, describe it. and that really bothered me like that session went well it ended up being like three hours it was fun but it just kept bothering me and I remember telling my husband what do you think I should do do you think I should start a YouTube channel because at that same time I was getting into this whole like skin influencer thing on YouTube and mm-hmm. I used to watch these you know women and men talk about skincare in such a scientific manner and these were regular individuals right they weren't like doctors or anything I mean some were but not most But again, what was amazing was that although mostly women who followed these people in the comment section, it was like mini science conferences happening in the comment section, right? (laughs) Like you had had regular women going like, oh yeah, let me tell you the difference between retinoid, retinaldehyde and retinol. And I'm like, if women can understand that, they can like for sure understand money. It is not that complicated. So why is it that this one thing has taken on this almost like draconian proportion right whereas I mean for example I don't know how to cook right and to me and I also don't know how to drive cooking and driving for me are the two most dangerous human experiences someone could go through right you're in like a metal box hurtling at top speed on a road what's more dangerous than that or you're in front of a pressure cooker that's basically like heat and boiling liquid in a pressurized container that could explode at any minute and kill you and women do all of these things and money is what you're afraid of like 
it just didn't make sense to me. You can see how animated I'm getting right now. <laughs> I can. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. This is crazy. And you know, this is where I realized I'd always taken it for granted, right? Because I grew up equal household, only child. There wasn't really like a brother that my parents were telling me to rely on, right? So clearly that upbringing had an effect. And serendipitously, around this time, when I was thinking of starting a YouTube channel, Shinjani, who, as I said, you know, had been my boss at Paytm, called and she's like, hey, do you remember Chetra? Chetra is our third co-founder. She's also someone I'd met at Paytm. You know, we've been talking about blah, 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 blah. And I just heard the words like women, money. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And so it turns out they were thinking about something on, you know, similar lines. But a few months now, and she thought of me and they thought of me and we got together. And the rest, as I say, is history. But I will tell you like a few things that really blew my mind in the, in the coming six months, right? So we spent the first six months there was nothing on paper. Like we didn't set up a company. We didn't do anything. We just did interviews with like men, women, individuals, groups, Indian, not Indian, just like just to really, really validate the problem. And some of the things like I'm never going to forget some of the things we heard. So one of our interviewees made the statement saying, my mom always made the four digit decisions and five digit and upwards was my dad. This is Indian rupee, so you know that's why the four and the yeah. five digits. But that was so telling, right? Another thing we observed was that daughters of single mothers mm-hmm. grew up being a lot more in control of their finances and being a lot less afraid of, you know, just, just taking charge of money because they, they didn't have any other option. And we built like a ton of cool stuff at the time because we used to do tons of interviews. We built a sentiment analyzer and we built a psychometric and I remember the findings findings of the sentiment analyzer was so crazy because we were really worried that we were doing these interviews and you know we'd get so influenced by the person in front of us and that would really affect our findings and that's why we built the analyzer also because we were nerds but it was literally that the sentiment score that women attached to words related to money was like high positives high negatives Like there was nothing in between, right? And statements were like, money gives you a voice or if you don't have money, you don't have respect. So it was very visceral. It was very like feelings, like, you know, 10 levels down. And with men, it was very different. My sentiment scores weren't like wildly positive or negative. It wasn't within a band, mostly range bound. And not to say that they don't care about money. Of course they do. But it was more about Oh, money lets me do this. Money lets me do that. But it never went and touched the core identity. You know, they didn't feel like they were worthless without it or they didn't have respect without it. So, yeah, that's what got us to start Salt. Very simply, we realized this needs to change. Doesn't make sense at all. It's not a cognition problem. It's clearly a confidence problem. It could sometimes be a courage problem. And we need to build a product that is able to understand why women and people make decisions about money the way they do and then build products according to that and more importantly i mean i hate using the word sell but yeah sell those products to them accordingly right and that's in a nutshell what salt does amazing i feel like i get goosebumps when you say some of these things around like you know during the pandemic 
women were so much more impacted. And for the first time, I mean, I saw this with my myself and also some of my own friends. It's the first time to like, oh shit, I need to put my money in like interactive brokers and like figure out my portfolio allocation. And people who are super smart, super well-credentialed working in finance. And it does feel like there is this, it's like this deeply personal part of our lives, especially for women that only get revealed under like stressful situations um, like the pandemic. And so it really sounds like, you know, starting SALT was amazing timing, but also really rooted in this, in this core customer problem. And everything you've described to me about how you built SALT is really putting women at the center. I've been calling it women-centered design. We talk about human-centered design, but I think women-centered design is super relevant here. So can you share a little bit about, I guess, the core the core products. And I think also sharing maybe a little bit more around the psychometric tests on the psychometric scoring, because I think that's a really fascinating part of SALT that honestly, I don't even know if you need to be a SALT user to, to find value in. You're asking me things that I love talking about. <laughs> so also, you know, what's crazy is when, when we first put the psychometric out, like the typical response like the typical vc and fintech response to it was like really a quiz and now you know close to two years and everyone thinks it was genius but yeah let me let me tell you about the origin story so as i said you know when we started out we were doing these interviews with women right and we used to very gingerly ask them for their time like can you give us 30 minutes and you know ask them questions about their money and we were really scared like would they open up would they not and these would turn out to be like to our conversations that were cathartic. And at the end of those conversations, the women would actually end up thanking us. Like, this is the first time I've spoken about money out loud in my life to another woman. Thank you so much. And we were like, this is crazy. We have to productize this. And that's how the psychometric, I mean, we call it the money personality test. That's how the psychometric was born, right? So we, obviously we didn't want it to be like super biased. We didn't want to just create our own you know questions and seeds because just that would be super biased so we just scoured and our first employee by the way at salt he's obviously still with us was actually a data scientist and an absolute nerd just like the rest of us so so we just scoured the internet for any study anywhere that we could use and we found one i kid you not like in this entire world we found one study that had credibly analyzed you know psychological impact of money and yada yada and it was like a really old Scandinavian study and it was obviously really hard to adapt it to the Indian context but I was quite pleasantly surprised to see it turned out to be not as hard as we had thought right so that's the first conclusion was so many things about money are so universal it actually if I didn't tell you that was a Scandinavian study you wouldn't have guessed you I could have easily fooled you into thinking oh this was done in Japan or this was done in India right and so we adapted that a little bit and then started the hard part of building questions building questions in a way that people answered truthfully right because it's it's so tempting to lie to a questionnaire to want to impress a questionnaire and how do we do it and you know we worded and we reworded and i think we did like 30 iterations of clustering once at 5000 users once at 10000 users once at 50000 and 100000 right and every single time the seeds would kind of arrange themselves in this poetic beauty because the five factors that came out as, you know, the main factors, like this is everything that affects 
the way you make any decision about money was anxiety, intuition, you know, need for precautionary saving, propensity for free spending and actual financial decision making, right? And when we saw the way those patterns emerged and what that would mean for the so it was five, you know, it was five cohorts or five personalities. And if I didn't show you the seats, right? If I just at the time told you the description, you'd be like, yeah, this is my friend XYZ or this is my cousin ABC, right? And so it was really gratifying to see that happen. And then obviously we did this because we wanted to make this enjoyable. We wanted to make this self-propagating, right? In the sense that we didn't want to put money behind getting people to take this test. We wanted them to do it organically because that's when our findings would be the most accurate. So we gave them really delightful names and a great UI. So, you know, you could be a cautious cabbage or a sorted sauce or a discerning donut or an anxious artichoke or an okay olive. And the test did really well. And, you know, now we've like close to a quarter of a million people have done it. And it kind of gave us the cheat sheet for building the rest of sort, right? Because for example, we knew that we wanted to build certain, you know, we wanted to tackle wealth creation first, right? So saving and investing and also money management, right? And then we knew we wanted to go on to wealth protection, which is insurance and then eventually lending because, you know, that was, that to us seemed like the logical 80-20 order of doing things, right? So let's take investing as an example. There's a reason that there's amazing fintech apps in India, amazing fintech apps in India, and yet less than 5% of their user base is women. There's a reason. It's not because women can't understand math or can't understand complicated words. It's just that the way that information is presented to them is not how women consume information and make decisions, right? So people love to say that women are risk averse. And it really saddens me because if you look at the study that originated this, it's actually so scientific and accurate. It says that the female brain is built in a way that, let's say, early man, early woman, like, I don't know, that time when we were forest dwellers and we had to hunt for survival, the female brain was wired in a way that you would go after high probability, moderate to high rewards, right? To maximize your chance of survival. The male brain was wired in a way that it would go after lower probability, really high value rewards, right? And that's what it said. And if you if you just look at that behavior, high probability, moderate value rewards, that is literally how any fund manager, money manager is supposed to think, right? And that's how women's brains are inherently wired. And yet through the years, there's, it's morphed into this like ugly understanding of women are risk averse and, you know, women, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So we were like, we need to break this. And, you know, we need to break this by speaking to those core psychological fears. So for example, the way we build rewards on our platform, right? It was in such a way that we wanted to make you stop being afraid of losing money. So I remember the first product that we built was create a mock portfolio, right? And you pick three days of the highest gain or the highest loss, right? And if you're right, we give you like a tiny reward, right? The reward wasn't even meaningful, but it achieved the purpose of making our users not afraid of like short-term loss or short-term volatility because you get rewarded either way, right? And then we started ob observing this inherent behavior in women where they would accumulate rewards and they wouldn't cash them out and they'd want to watch them grow. We observed insane network effects within women. Like we always know this, right? Women are champions of things that they love. So 
the network effects in the average user base was 0.5, but the network effects within women were 3.5, right? So the ability to influence another woman's decision. We knew that a big psychological hurdle for a lot of women was, I don't know where my money goes. And so we built this really delightful NLP-based money tracker where we captured your sentiment score. So when I write Jamun Harness 150 and I put a heart emoji, it's because that purchase made me happy. And I record that. And Jamun's my dog. So, you know, after a while, the model understands that Jamun's my dog. Jamun also happens to be a fruit. So if you write, you know, Jamun 50, it would know that it's groceries. And we noticed that people would write things like, paid back my student loan, yay, and like 10 emojis. And that would be a really high sentiment score. And sometimes people would be like, bought an expensive dress, regretted now 500, like sad emojis, right? And we realized that the value of capturing that sentiment behind that money decisions and reflecting it back to people time to time was just so valuable. So yeah, these were some of the sort of core early controversial for some reason decisions that we made people thought it was really bizarre that this is what we chose to focus on but that's what we did i love that i mean i think it's so you're also talking to someone i wrote my master's thesis on quantifying financial health and like how do you measure that so i think the psychometric score is is right up my alley and you have to i think the sentiment piece is so important there's so many scores out there like everyone comes up with like a financial wellness score financial health score certainly in the west it's a little bit less common here in Asia, but they're all biased and they don't capture sentiment. But sentiment is almost the most important part because that like you can be like on paper financially healthy or financially not healthy. But if you feel good or feel bad about your situation, that absolutely changes like your interaction with money. And I also love what you said about women not necessarily being risk averse as we have been, you know, pigeonholed into for many years. I like to call it risk aware. And we see this, you know, with my women focus angel investing syndicate that women just want to have, it's not like they're risk averse. They just want to have more information. We just want to have more information before we make an investing decision because it, it can be a big decision. Or as you said, maybe it's not a huge decision and you have to just get comfortable with the level of risk that's out there. And that takes a little bit of handholding, which I think, you know, is leads into the types of products that you've developed. I think the first sort of the entry point product is a digital gold product, which is about savings, but then you also move on pretty quickly to, to mutual funds. So Aditi, can you quick maybe tell us about the different products that you, you do actually offer and what are the business models for those products, at least at this point in time? Got it. Yes. So you're absolutely right that, you know, people start out with the non-transactional side of things, you know, the money personality test or the passport, which is the you know, the cute money tracker with the sentiment score. In India, you have now our own sort of version of open banking, which is called account aggregator framework. So fortunately, we've been able to automate the passbook, you know, add your bank accounts to it, give you more of like a one-stop view. And then we very slowly transition you. And this was, by the way, how we built it. People use this in whatever logic, you know, whatever order they see fit. We moved on to digital gold, again, playing on, you know, Indians love for gold. And the fact that it's an easy product to gamify a little bit, to create rewards out of, to make attractive. Mutual funds, you're absolutely right to do that, though you have to be a regulated entity that always takes a little bit longer. Also, you can't gamify it as maybe you shouldn't. (laughs) So, you know, that's where we get a little bit into the 
serious territory with mutual funds. And one of the things we did was create these baskets because we realized vocabulary is everything, right? Just the way with the money personality test, it's very hard to tweet. I keep trying, but I still am terrible with money and that makes me anxious. It's so much easier to say, oh, I'm an anxious artichoke. We did the same thing with mutual funds. It's so hard to consume PGDM India mid-cap opportunities make sense for you. But if you just bundle things into, here's a beginner-friendly basket. Here's a ride-out-the-recession basket, right? It becomes part of people's vocabulary. That's how they start talking to you that, oh, you know what? I started with beginner-friendly, but I think I'm ready for turbocharged now. And we saw that make such a huge difference. We then added, because we realized we were getting all manner of users. You know, we were getting college students who wanted to invest their stipend to people making, you know, first salary to H&I women who had been accumulating wealth and, you know, they were in their 50s and no banker had ever thought to pitch a wealth product to them. So we started offering portfolio management services to cater to, you know, some of those needs. And then we kind of rounded back to saying, okay, I think we've made our point with the whole saving and wealth creation. And so we recently introduced insurance because we realized it is, I mean, I understand why it is such a difficult product to sell. It is actually really, really, really complicated. Unfortunately, it's also really, really necessary. And in India specifically, you know, with the amount of women that are, that work, but not in corporates, so they don't have that health cover by default. And I think if anybody needs health cover, <laughs> it's women, right? And Another interesting thing that we'd seen based on our passbook data is that, you know, men had a lot of socialization expenses. So like eating out, you know, traveling, so on and so forth. Women did too. But for women, their expenses were dominated a lot by caregiving expenses, childcare, pet care, home improvement, self-improvement sometimes, right? And so the understanding that whether financially or not, you have a lot of people depending on you. So life cover becomes really important for you, right? So that's why I think we've recently introduced insurance. The business model here very simply is, you know, it's a commission structure, right? All of these are pre-existing regulated financial products. People buy them, you earn a percentage, the percentage varies. So for something like portfolio management services or gold, it's in that one to 2% range. For insurance, it's in the 15% range, you know, but the goal very simply is for us has always been don't missell, don't jargonize, right? It's not like these products didn't exist before, but the reason why women weren't partaking and we started noticing that in the younger generation, so Gen Z, that gap between men and women was converging in that a lot of men felt completely disenchanted by just like, what do these words mean? And why, why are these people talking to me in this way? Why are they trying to scare me into investing or scare me into buying insurance? So yeah, those are our products. We're going to start very, we now have this approach where we POC everything before we build it out because we build things out very, very thoughtfully and that takes time. And so we always, even with insurance, we did it in the most chicken wire duct tape way possible. So we're going to do that with lending very soon because I think when you get into lending, especially from the saving investing side, it's very important to keep that message kosher, right? In a country like India, it's so easy to exploit lending because everybody wants money and it's just so easy to like make money off of giving loans to like whoever will take them. So how do you offer that product without compromising on your core message of just fiscal prudence and, you know, don't lose track? So yeah, that's that's what we're working on right now. So exciting. 
yeah, I'm excited to see the continued iterations of of salt. And it sounds also like Aditi, that you're seeing a lot of you're not just serving women. I mean, I think it, the product initially started as like serving women, but to the extent that men also need simple products that they can understand and and participate in in a simple and easy way that doesn't make them feel inferior to someone that's like worked in the finance industry for their whole career, I think is so important. And so I ha- I do have this question. I do have to ask at this moment, like what you said earlier, I, I also want to pull out that stat you mentioned, which is that fintechs only serve 5% of fintech customers are women, which is a really horrible stat. And so SALT is obviously doing a lot of work to solve this problem for those women customers that are left out. But how come nobody else is doing this now that everyone's got wind that like, hey, maybe women are actually a customer base that we should be targeting? Shouldn't banks and fintechs start moving in this direction? I guess, how how are you going to become a unicorn if everybody wants to steal your customers by also starting to serve women in a much more intentional way? So that's a that's a great question. So I'll tell you a few more tidbits that I learned along the way. So, you know, when I say that less than 5% of the fintech, the active fintech consumer base is women, I'm actually talking about, you know, wealth tech, insure tech, and, you know, all of these like financial products. If you see women's participation in payments apps, for example, right, it's a lot higher because it's transactional. And then if you look at their participation in anything else, right? So retail, obviously women, you know, dominate very often, but even like movie booking and, you know, so on and so forth. And so when we started building for this, we were like, this is just the most obvious market gap ever. And it's only a question of time before others jump in. And then others jump, didn't jump in. And instead, a lot of these, you know, amazing fintechs, some of who actually ended up investing in us early on, actually came to us and said, Tell us when you crack this because we we really want to know how. And then this is something I learned over time because, you know, they were obviously kind enough to share is a lot of these fintechs, and I'm not going to take names, but literally some of the biggest fintechs coming out of India have at some point in their life journey spent millions and millions of dollars, like 20x the times that Salt has raised as a company in its lifetime to try and get their female base above, you know, 2% or 5% or whatever it was. And it's, it's failed. And so they stopped. And, you know, one reason why they stopped is also because India is so huge, right? Unfortunately, or fortunately, you would still be economically viable if you said, okay, you know what, I'm just going to focus on the men. I know how to do that. There's enough of an untapped market there. So one that the next best alternative wasn't that bad, right? There's just enough untapped wallet because India is such a large country and getting the women was proving to be really, really hard. And, you know, obviously, because I've not, I've not worked in those companies and I've only ever been targeted as a consumer. So what I'm saying is just purely my understanding as a female consumer having been, you know, targeted. But it's a little cliche, you know, it ranges from the banks trying to do the pink debit card or the credit card with like shopping with a shopping bag or like this Indian woman with like a bindi there's nothing wrong with the bindi but you know like the the really so there's the whole like pink it shrink it dumb it down approach to the oh let me make this safe for you and create a safe space which is easy and comforting for you which is basically you know you're just like talking down to the women and they're like 
stop talking to me like that to trying like a completely you know I, i've seen a lot of the concept of rewards in fintech it's such a you could do a study on it right i think my learning has been that everyone loves rewards you like being given free stuff but i've noticed women love rewards when it serves that higher purpose of also making me feel like i did something good here right and so creating that reward in that manner very simply or you know referral for example we added a very simple feature to our referral program where you get to literally like on the app like write the name of so typically what you do you copy a referral code and you give it to someone right we made a very small change at sort where we're like okay i'm just going to say who's this referral code for and i could write your name i could say amrita and i could send it to you and when you used my code it would show me like a little star next to your name which would make me as a woman or a person feel really happy that hey i got amrita started on this you know journey to get get her sort of finances in order and very soon we ab tested it and we realized people didn't even care if we took the reward out they were just happy to you know have that feeling of oh i did something good and you know it could be for myself it could be for someone else so i think this the understanding of women as a customer of financial services and what they care about and what makes them tick another crazy example like in all of you know indian fintech's glory you could download any fintech app i promise you any fintech app and you wouldn't find the following feature investing on behalf of a minor right so i want to invest on behalf of my son my daughter my anyone in my life who i care about who's a minor the feature doesn't exist it's actually remarkably easy to build but it doesn't exist you know why because nobody's customers are women but this is the first thing our customers asked us for like women who had never invested in their life started investing and literally the next question was okay now i want to do this for my dad or my mom or my son right or someone that i care about that inherent behavior of just caregiving and caretaking it's so hardwired and it's such a simple thing to understand and honestly it had been a blind spot for us also right because we've grown up in this environment we've never had that feature offered to us and when we heard it we were like yeah that's crazy that's crazy that with everything that indian fintechs achieved like nobody's built that because it's such a no brainer so i think it's a lot of these things somewhere and i don't mean this in a in an altruistic way at all but i'd actually be really happy if more people started to fight in this space because i genuinely feel like there's been such little innovation when it comes to trying to understand this customer trying to speak to her and if you look at any other industry right if you look at maternity if you look at beauty if you look at fashion if you look at you know sustainable clothing there's so many industries that have done a remarkable job of understanding this customer and catering to her very visceral needs and there's been such amazing innovation right just everything from like body positivity to 50 shades of concealer like it's the little things but they matter right and competition makes that happen so yeah i actually do hope that others start fighting in our arena as we like yeah. to call it right now yeah yeah i hope so too i think to the extent that we can make services that just target women like obsolete like that would be great but i think as you said people still haven't done it and i think we're a long way away from it so very excited to to see how salt is going to at least lead the way in this space i think i want to take a couple more minutes and just zoom out a little bit and talk about the india fintech landscape 
just because it's, I find Indian fintech to be just amazing. India stack has, is basically the most advanced financial infrastructure in the world with UPI. And I've even heard that they're going to start white labeling it for other countries, which is just so amazing. I wanted to quick ask, because you've been part of the India of the India stack effectively. And I want to understand, like, what do you think made this innovation possible in the rest of in India? And what can the rest of the world learn? You know, when I was at Paytm, right, that was actually when UPI was kind of getting rolled out. And I remember that there were all of these like, you know, organizations, NBCI, who sort of rolled out UPI and adjacent, who were like trying to drum up interest in UPI. Like it sounds like such a crazy thing to say now, but they were going to like, you know, the big fintechs and saying, oh, why don't, why don't you join this? And I think, you know, we at Paytm, we we had, we'd built our own stack, right? Like the wallet had made P2P just so seamless. And it sounds crazy to me now that that had to happen, but but the reason was that even UPI's predecessor or its predecessor was actually better than what most countries have today, right? So like the way they always say about the Nokia origin story that, you know, when there's crazy amount of snow and the terrains are forgiving, you can't have telephone lines. And so you build mobile phones. I think it was a little bit like that, right? India is so vast as a country. It's so hard to achieve a semblance of equity and access without technology. So you just have to do it. It's a necessity at one point, right? Add to that the fact that I think just as, I don't know, like as a gene pool where scrappy and innovative and everything starts chicken wire duct tape and then, you know, it eventually becomes... The famous Indian Jugad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And so uh, so interestingly, the, the history of Indian payments is, you know, we started as most central banks do with a with an RDJS or real-time, you know, real-time gross settlement. And then we built something called the NEFT, which was like a more, well, non-real-time, but, you know, could take care of higher volumes because, again, India, population, people, just volumes, right? And then someone said, oh, let's create something called IMPS, which was an instant sort of, it was, it was actually not even money movement. It was information files being exchanged between banks, which was instant settlement. And initially, there was a lot of resistance. Banks were like, no, but then, you know, they all jumped onto the bandwagon. And interestingly, UPS built on the IMPS rails, right? So it's not like this new technology. So I think, one, there was enough need. Two, there was more than enough competition. Three, with fintechs coming in and, you know, building their own wallets and building things on top of IMPS, banks and NPCI, which is the body that does this, and basically like a consortium of, you know, banks. And it was like, okay, how do we make this better? Because in India, uh, what's also always been a problem is it's always been a cash-heavy economy, right? And cash is so expensive to maintain. It's so hard to secure. There's everything from like counterfeiting to whatever. So technology gave us that easy solution, but it was also like, it, it was good greed, right? Like how can I capture more of this market? How can I, today in India, you'll find villages and like really small settlements that don't have a physical bank anywhere in sight, but they have UPI acceptance, right? And that's what I think someone was visionary enough to think about that I will no longer be shackled by the constraints of like physical branches, physical banking, and you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, that. It's an amazing, amazing story. And I think, as you said, like the sheer size of India 
makes the need basically the biggest motivator to make these changes. And I think similarly, what you're building with salt, it also like the need is the biggest motivator, right? There's 700, 700 million women in India. And I think if you can really mobilize them to, to put their money in, in assets that are going to generate value can also be tremendously impactful. And I also want to quickly ask you about that, right? Because there is this huge scale of women in India, and we're seeing, I think this, you mentioned this in your archetypes earlier, of women that they're earning more and they're becoming more financially independent. Yet we still see these huge gender disparities in India, you know, when it comes to education, health, pay, and of course, financial literacy. I guess as we're seeing, you know, this incredible technology take us forward, what do you think needs to happen to actually have those changes reach like women as well? Salt being one solution, but what else needs to happen? You know, it's this is not my favorite answer because it's really, really hard to do, right? Because if you, exactly as you said, a lot of just changes at the social fabric level, right? Inheritance law is changing. Now that was a big change, right? Women by default going to have more money. Family structure is changing a little bit, right? Education, most number of STEM graduates, those sort of things. But I do think that something that's very central, right? Is, and I always say this, when it's not a lack of opportunity, it is a lack of expectation. Of course, for really long, there was a lack of opportunity, right? Women weren't just given the same opportunities, whether it was education or managing money and, you know, managing household finances was like the max you could aspire to. But as we started to solve that somewhere on the, we didn't move fast enough on the lack of expectation in that little girls were still growing up thinking that, you know, the brother or the husband or the father, like like till today, right? And I made it compulsory for everyone who joins SALT, specifically every woman who joins SALT, you have to file your own taxes because you'll be amazed at the number of women today in India you could find whose dads are more than happy to file their taxes for them. Like it's such a little thing, but you know that outsourcing to the nearest male member, right? It is somewhere a function of that expectation not being instilled in you that, listen, you have to do this on your own. It's not okay to like just delegate it to the next available person or, you know what, learn how to do it on your own. And then if you still want to delegate it, do that. So I think somewhere that has to change. So I've had the good fortune of working with women who, similar to my own upbringing, grew up with, you know, having that expectation and having like that equal expectation. And you really see the difference in the adults they turn out to be. So I think one very big thing that needs to happen, honestly, and I know it's so hard, but it's at the family level. It's, it's that it needs to be like the survival skill. You know, they make this joke about, oh, moms need to teach their sons how to cook. Well, yeah, sure. But more importantly, moms and dads need to teach their daughters that they need to be responsible for their own money. So I think that's a really big thing that needs to happen. I think what I'm loving more with like Gen Z and younger people, the whole concept of wage transparency, because that's the other thing, right? Just, and I'm so glad these days people say no to just giving like salary slips to HR, because I think the information asymmetry around wages and what you should be making, like it's almost become acceptable to underpay women. You know, women don't negotiate. I think that a little bit of that wage transparency coming in is also the other change because invariably, right, as you start feeling equal there, you will want to be equal in everything else. 
you will want your money as a woman to work just as hard as your you know male peers money is working right like his money is working while he's sleeping you'll want your money to work as well so i think a lot of the small changes are already happening but a lot more of them and these are the nature of changes that need to happen there's of course increased government and regulatory spending and you know all of those things are going to amplify this sure but these are like inside out changes that need to happen yeah yeah it's almost like a it's like a paradigm shift but it does take time it does take time I think we spent a lot of time today chatting and I think this has been such a fun and insightful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and all the best to you in Salt. Thank you so much. I really, really loved having this conversation. Time flew by and um, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Adithi. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you leaving us five stars, a review, and passing us along to your friends. And if you know anyone who'd be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.